0: What makes for a good house design? A good house design. Have you ever thought about what what it's like to walk into a house and you are completely taken back? Your breath is taken away and you think, this is the best house I've ever seen. Or maybe it's not a house, you walk into a a building downtown or, or some structure, but the architecture is so exquisite, it takes your breath away. What would it take for that to happen with you, we all have different tastes. We all find different things about architecture um, appealing. Uh, I mean, as kids, we play with Lincoln logs and Legos or Jenga blocks. You know, at one time, we could have all been considered builders and architects and designers. But what makes a house excellent? We need to think about that question this morning, get our minds in that realm because. The passage today is going to be talking a lot about structure and house and building, architecture. Isn't it true that we judge the quality of a structure, of architecture, off of how creative it is, how beautiful it is, how lasting, how well it's engineered, how lasting, the longevity it has, and then the functionality of the space. These are all factors in the beauty of architecture. So let me ask you a multiple choice question. Our students at the University of Texas are about to gear up for finals week, so let me allow you to empathize with them. We're going to do one multiple choice question. Here it is. It's going to be A, B, C. A, B, or C. Here's the question. Who deserves the title of the world's best designer? The best builder. Best architect. We'll just call it designer. Here it is. Who deserves title of the best? Is it A, Frank Lloyd Wright? B, Team Gaines, Chip and Joanna Gaines? Or is it C, The Animals in Nature? If you're taking notes, jot down the letter of your answer at the top of your bulletin. If you're not taking notes, just mentally log it. Is it A, Frank Lloyd Wright? He died in 1959. He was an American architect, prolific career. He was innovative. He was before his time. He drew inspiration from nature. He had complex buildings, but yet they were also simple. They were beautiful to look at. It's a shame if you're too young to even know who Frank Lloyd Wright is. Go Google him this afternoon and, and look at his architecture. Or is it Chip and Joanna Gaines? Texas natives, homegrown talent. We know what they're like. They had a TV show. Now it's not on the air anymore, Fixer Upper. But they had such warmth and charm, didn't they? And it was almost like what they built was equal and on par with their own character and their warmth. They, they were in Waco, Texas. They still are. And they had that French country look to their houses, didn't they? Those clean lines. It was so appealing And their floor plans had a lot of functionality, the open floor plan. Or maybe your answer to that multiple choice question would be the letter C, animals in nature. What I mean by that is animals in nature build things, don't they? What do beavers build? They build a dam. What do bees and wasps build? Well, they build wasp nests and beehives. What does a spider build? A spider builds a web. What do ants build? An anthill, right? And you may have chosen them as the best builders and circled that on your multiple choice because these animals are so resourceful. They're environmentally friendly. That's what we look for in buildings, don't we? But that multiple choice isn't as serious as As the question, what does God build? And do you find him as the most attractive, masterful architect? What does God build? What is he about? What is he doing? We know that he's built the cosmos, the universe. We know that he's built by his grand design our our human bodies and all the wonder of anatomy. But, But is that all he's built? Is there any structure that he is continuing to work on and build? I would submit to you that there is. It's what we're going to look at today. It's his church. God is building a house, and he's been building it for thousands of years. It's his church. And Peter this morning, the Apostle Peter, is going to show us what this building, what this house looks like. He's going to show us the front door. He's going to show us the walls of this structure. He's even going to show us and take us around back and show us the foundation. And he's going to show us the functionality of this house. It is incredible. My prayer this morning is that we would admire the architecture of what God is doing. We would participate in it and make our home where he wants us to make our home in this life, in the church. So turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. It's on page 1014 and 1015 of the Bibles near you. And as you're turning there, let it be stated clearly up front that Peter presents Christ as the foundation of God's redemptive work, of his house, the church. And the building projects that Peter shows us here is a spiritual house, and he shows us that mankind either accepts and rest upon what Jesus is and what he does as the cornerstone or we reject it and we choose to build our own way and we reject God's building materials. So let's read now this passage, 1 Peter 2, 1 through 10. So put away all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy And all slander, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house "...has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we we ask this morning that you would give us ears to hear what it is that you're building. Help us to want to invest in what you are building and help us to see the danger the folly and the eternal destruction of not joining you in your building project, Lord. We ask, Father, you'd give us grace now. Help us to be equipped and encouraged, rebuked even where we need rebuke, but help us all to see Christ more clearly as the cornerstone chosen and precious. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Think about your dwelling place right now, where you live. Maybe it's an apartment, a condo, a house. And I want you to think about what does the entryway look like? Maybe it's a side entry. Maybe you always go in the side. I don't know. But every structure that we live in has a front door to it, an entryway, doesn't it? And in many ways, verses one through three, is the entryway, the doorway to the church. I don't want to show you that. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3. This is the doorway to God's building, God's house, his church. The doorway. Put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. Preacher, that doesn't sound like a front door. That sounds like evil things and a newborn baby and milk and new taste buds. Do you see that that's the front door of God's church? What do you mean? Well, the front door of the church has always been genuine and true conversion, hasn't it? Always. Even if you attend church, attend a gathering of people. We know church is not a building, it's a gathering of people. But just by mere attendance does not mean you're in the church. There is a front door, and it is a well-lit path. It's welcoming, but to go in the front door, you've got to take off your dirty shoes, your filthy clothes when you come to the house. That's called repentance. These vices that are listed in verse 1, put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, slander. This is a picture of repentance. And then new birth is pictured in verse two. And Peter says, like newborn infants, we are to long for pure spiritual milk. This milk is the word of God, but it's more than that. It's God himself. And just like infants, we all know what it's like to see a newborn or hear a newborn cry. The only thing that will satisfy them is what? A diaper change? Hmm. Turning up the AC, up or down, changing the thermostat? Hearing their mother or their father's voice? No. What satisfies that newborn infant like nothing else? It's pure milk. And Peter says that we are to crave, we are to long for, we are to find a deliciousness to the milk that God gives his very presence it's interesting that that this is the front door of the church and it's this nice hinge in the passage between chapter 1 and then chapter 2 chapter 1 Peter spoke about salvation to so these scattered exiles and then he began to talk about holiness and love and everything has been individual up until this point in the letter An individual salvation an individual called a holiness and now he turns the corner so he uses this idea of of our holiness being continued repentance but he turns the corner because just like that newborn infant can't live on their own they rely on someone else bringing them milk Peter turns the corner and shows Christians you are not pursuing holiness in this solo lone ranger Christian sort of way You're actually growing up in your salvation into the church. And he doesn't want anybody to be mistaken, and they think they're in the church, but they're not really in the church. So He, verses 1 through 3 tells us, you are only in God's church if you have new taste buds, new spiritual thirst and longings and tastes for the Lord. It doesn't mean that you're perfect, but it does mean that you have new tastes. So one of the first questions I would ask you, brothers and sisters, is how do you know that you're in God's church? Do you have a taste for Christ and his gospel and what he's done? Or do you find yourself just attending and thinking that that that's enough? We have to enter this house the right way, the front door. That's the front door of the church, verses one through three. And then in verses 4 and 5, we're not, we're not looking at the front door anymore. We're actually looking at the walls and the floor plan of God's building. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So how in the world does Peter flip the metaphor from a baby and a a milk bottle and he goes to rocks and stones? That infant that is with its mother, whether there's a bottle or not, there's a tender, precious moment there, right, When when a mother is feeding a child? so tender it's so soft even and then he switches to this hard rock-like metaphor how does he do that does peter just have one of these weird misfiring brains is he just a random apostle i happen to like random people but is, is he that way well no here's where peter got the idea it came from matthew 16 do you remember when peter was with christ and the disciples and jesus turned to them and said who do you say that i am some say elijah some say John the Baptist, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, son of the living God. And then Jesus said to him, yes, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Is he talking about Peter or something else? The Roman Catholic Church would say, "Up oh, here it is. The church is built upon Peter and then somebody else after him, and all the way till we've got the Pope now. You Protestants, you've got it all wrong. But if we look at what Jesus says, we know that that is absurd. Peter is not the rock. He's a little rock. But his confession of who Christ is is so much firmer than his own personhood, isn't it? That is the rock. It's his confession. Peter's confession can be rightly laid upon Christ. The church is built by a true confession, not Peter himself. We know this because Peter himself is too shaky and unstable to be the foundation of the church, isn't he? Peter was rebuked by Jesus directly after telling him that he must never go to the cross. And then later on, he would deny Jesus three times. And then even in the book of Galatians, we read about him acting in a legalistic way way and proves unstable. He's a man mixed with stability and instability. But after all, he is a spokesman for the apostles. He does testify rightly of Jesus in Matthew 16. He does mighty things at Pentecost in the book of Acts. He helps build up the church. But one thing is clear, Peter himself is not the cornerstone. He's just one of the first rocks laid next to that cornerstone that foundational stone but let's let's look at it that's how he got the metaphor by the way but let's look at what he says how he builds upon this idea verse 4 he says as you come to him a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious Jesus is rejected in verse 4 and Peter is pointing to two building projects they're going two different directions with different building materials You've got the sight and the plans of God on one hand and the sight and the plans of men on the other there in verse 4. The Jews and the Gentiles who did not accept the Messiah as Christ were rejecting him and stumbling over him. And so this rock idea is so useful for Peter because by showing that Christ is a rock, this rock can be used to identify what you build upon And also a rock that's rejected. So it serves a dual purpose. Peter calls us, those who know Christ, do you notice what he calls us in verse 5? Living stones. Have you ever thought about yourself as a, a living stone? We are living stones. Our union with Christ begins our conformity with him. And because he is a living stone, we are living stones. He's living because... He rose from the grave. He is alive. That's why he's living. A living stone. And what's interesting about this picture of being a living stone is all of you, before you were a living stone, if you know Christ, you were a dead, lifeless stone. Consider it this way. A pastor in England... In the 1800s said it this way. He said, God's temple does not build itself, and neither does man build it. It is the sole work of God. The Spirit of God quarries out of the pit of nature the stones which are as yet dead, separating them from the mass to which they adhered. He gives them life, and then fashions and squares and polishes them, and they, without sound of axe or hammer, are brought... To the appointed place and built upon Christ Jesus, the cornerstone. So, the walls of God's house are unique. They're not like the walls that we could touch and feel when we leave this place. They are made up of living stones. What God chooses to build with is organic, it's living. There's not going to be any rot or drywall in the walls, it's alive, it's living. We are living stones. We are part of a growing house. What God builds with is biological. New stones are added and old stones are perfected. And the imagery of living stones built into a single unit has major implications for us. Significance meaning that our identity as individual Christians cannot be realized apart from the community that we are in with other believers. Coming to Christ means coming into a relationship with others, not only in one's own generation, but also by being united with believers of every generation who likewise have been built into God's grand building project. Have you considered that when you read church history or hear about saints of old, even decades past, you're being built up into the same structure they are, There's a unity. The structure will be completed only when the scaffolding of human history comes down and the kingdom of Christ is revealed in all its glory. Do you marvel at what God is building? You yourselves are like living stones, verse 5 says. But what, what is the wall's what, what are they doing? What's the floor plan? What, what's, what's actually happening with these walls? He tells us right there, second half of verse 5, or the middle of verse 5. You're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. This is the Old Testament imagery. It's as if Chip and Joanna are saying, hey, let's get some reclaimed wood. This is the reclaimed wood. This is Old Testament ideas, isn't it? A house spiritual house, the temple, the priesthood. Exodus 19 tells us that Israel, after they left Egypt in the Exodus, was meant to be this kingdom of priests, a holy priesthood. And he applies it to his listeners. You are priests now. It's not just something a pastor is, but no, you, all of the living stones, you are priests. This does have huge ramifications for the regenerate church membership that we practice but as a priesthood and a house it carries the idea that god is dwelling in our midst this is his house just like the temple in the old testament where worship would happen there's something special about when we gather together as a local church and he says that idea of a holy priesthood priests are those who offer sacrifices They mediate God's presence with the people, don't they? They would offer prayers on behalf of the people to God, but they would mediate his presence. They would offer gifts and sacrifices. The priests were not consumers, were they? Do you remember Eli's wicked sons? They would steal meat out of the sacrifices and eat what they shouldn't eat. They actually grew fat and obese and large and heavy. They were consumers, not priests, and if we're not careful, brothers and sisters, we can think the church is just like any other thing in the world, an organization or a structure, and we can become consumers. We can come and say, "Lord, are you going to play my favorite song today? Father, are you going to are you going to give me a sermon today that I just I really want to hear, not what I need to hear, but what I want to hear." Many churches have this theotainment mentality. We want to make it as comfortable as possible. We want to let you have whatever you like, whatever's comfortable for you. And we really want to advertise well because we don't want you to go to some other church. We want to be the best at advertising and keeping you here. And we treat the living stones of God like wicked consumers and not priests. You should be looking for a local church where you can offer spiritual sacrifices, where the priesthood is taken seriously. That's not my idea. That's what God's word says. The spiritual sacrifices we offer, have you ever thought about that? If we're not to be consumers, what are we supposed to do when we come to church? Before I share with you some spiritual sacrifices, just stop and ask yourself, what spiritual sacrifice did you come with in today's gathering? To offer to God did you prepare up anything to offer to God or did you come expecting to just receive yes we receive from God but we're priests we give we offer sacrifices the New Testament tells us many things about sacrifices so does the old we're told that the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart a broken spirit Psalm 51 don't ever believe the lie that if you're not doing well, you shouldn't go to church because you don't have it all together. Don't ever believe the lie if you're not doing well and you're broken over your sin, you're not supposed to be in our gathering, in our midst. That is a sacrifice you can offer up to God. Lord, I am broken over my sin. Which is what we heard last week, confession. If we genuinely confess, we will be broken over the things we've done, and we can offer those to God as spiritual sacrifices. The New Testament tells us in Hebrews 13, 15, that a sacrifice of praise is what we offer, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. The verse right after that, Hebrews 13, 16, tells us that by doing good and sharing with others, these sacrifices are pleasing to God. We know in the book of Philippians that Paul would say that The money that was given, the the generosity there, that's described as a sacrifice. Philippians 4.18. Even our prayers in the book of Revelation are are offered up as a gift, as gifts and incense. And then I like how Romans 12.1 puts it. It's the totality of everything. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. The whole of who you are, all this holiness stuff that Peter had been saying towards the end of chapter one all of that can be this pleasing aroma this sacrifice that you offer to the lord in his house so we are not consumers we are priests god is building his house so first we saw the front door we saw somewhat of the the layout of the walls the floor plan but i want to show you the foundation i want to show you the foundation thirdly the foundation verses six through eight you and I know why a foundation is important, don't we? If you show up to a new city, just like my family did a few months ago, and you're looking for a home or an apartment, whatever, whatever it may be, no matter how much you set your eyes on a place, the foundation is actually the most important thing about that place. Because the foundation is set upon a location. Location, location, location. Location's everything, right, in real estate. And the foundation is set upon that. So no matter how much the wife says, honey, I love the way the cabinets in this kitchen look. I love, I love the spaciousness of this living room. And oh, look, it's got an extra room for, for when family come to town. It's got a fence. The dog's not going to run out. The husband may say, honey, I don't care about all that. Just what's, what's the rent? What's the mortgage? Okay, it looks good, yeah. Let's put in an offer. None of that matters if the report that is given back when there's a home inspection, is, you know what? There's major foundational structural damage. Not only is this place not a good thing to buy, but we're actually going to make it condemned now. We're going to be putting up caution tape on it. I'm sorry, we shouldn't have even listed it on the market. We didn't check this out before we listed it. That would put everything to a screeching halt, wouldn't it? In fact, usually it's more costly to fix the foundation rightly than it is to do anything else. Everything rests upon the foundation. In fact, everything that's built on top of it, usually architects would say that the way the foundation is laid out is then going to determine the rest of the structure. If you can get a a keen eye for looking at structures and what the foundation of structures look like, then you can actually drive by a place and say, yep, that's going to be a skyscraper, or that's going to be an apartment place, or that's going to be a residential home, just by looking at the foundation before anything else is built. That's how important it is. So brothers and sisters, have you noticed the foundation that God has laid for his house? Look with me. It's there in verses 6 through 8. It's a quotation from Isaiah as well as Psalm 118. The quotation from Isaiah Peter uses is right there in verse 6. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, there's going to be shame. It says there in verses 7 and 8 that there's a rejection. Verse 8 talks about a stumbling and an offensiveness of this stone. Do you know what a cornerstone is? It's not one of those cute little capped on cornerstones of buildings we see today that have a plaque and it says circa 1941. 1941 or circa 1923, in loving memory of, and it's just almost like it's just a cute little feature on the corner of a building. A cornerstone in the ancient world was everything. It was the most costly part of the building. The cornerstone would be the first stone to be put in place since both the angles of the walls and the level of the stone courses would be extended out from it. The cornerstone must be square and true. Praise God that we have a cornerstone that is precisely square and true in all forms of righteousness. There's no deviation from the plumb line of God's righteousness in this stone that has been laid, Jesus Christ. In the ancient world, we we should also note that stonemasons would search for piles of of rocks for boulders that the size and shape that they needed they would finally see a stone that they wanted or a, a section of rock that they would quarry out they would choose it as precious they would bring it to the building site and then they would lay it down and begin building but after closer examination if that they saw that the stone veered off or it had a big chip on the underside of it Or that it wasn't squared off the right way. Or if they made a mistake in chiseling it out, they would reject that stone. That's what happened to Christ. It says there in verse 7, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So they rejected it. They didn't build with it. But Christ is still the cornerstone. Their opinion of him doesn't change who he is in reality. fact they're shamed because they didn't see him rightly so think about your life today and what your life is built upon is it built upon christ as a foundational stone or have you rejected him have you stumbled over him romans 9 verses 32 and 33 talk about the jews stumbled over christ because they pursued the law without any faith they thought their righteousness leaned upon themselves and they rested upon their own good works And when they would rest upon their own good works and then start running to God, they were so confident they would trip over this stone of righteousness. Many religious people today do the same thing. They trip over God in their pursuit of good works, thinking it's all about them and it all rests upon them. But we don't trip over this stone and we don't reject it either. We see it as precious. Why would somebody reject Christ as the cornerstone? If you are a non-believer, a non-Christian, go ahead, right now in your mind, tell me a reason to reject Christ as who you would build your life upon. And I would show you that that reason is faulty. Whatever else you're building your life upon will not stand in the last day. We build our lives upon many things, don't we? The cornerstone of just pleasure, the cornerstone of accomplishments, cornerstone of a great family. What is it that you are building your life upon? Build your life upon Christ. I don't want you to stumble. I don't want you to be shamed at the end of your days that you didn't build upon Christ. But here's where, as American Christians, we have to see what this passage is saying. This passage is not saying... I'm going to make this individual choice for Christ. I'm going to set my life upon him, and everything's good now. The entire context of this passage, just like verse 6, if you will, is a cornerstone, with all these verses branching out from it, when you set your life upon Christ, you are then necessarily aligning yourself with other Christians. It's a contradiction to say, I know Christ. I don't want anything to do with this church. I know Jesus. But it's just an individual call to holiness. Don't bother me with that church stuff. Peter is driving home to these scattered Christians. You're not going it alone. Your holiness is not only for you. You don't live unto just yourself. There's a community aspect here. If you are a living stone upon Christ, then you're also acknowledging the uncomfortable reality at times that other living stones are going to be laid right next to you. Isn't that uncomfortable? And other stones might say, hey, hey, look, this stone, look at this jagged edge. Hey, why don't you fix that? Why don't you smooth that out? And if we don't want to be a part of the local church, then we don't have that benefit, do we? We actually find ourselves to not be a part of God's building. We're just Materials on the construction site that's set off to the side. You know, in the neighborhood that we live in right now, just outside of Austin, in Hayes County, there are building projects happening all over the place. And every single house that I've seen built up, there is always a foundation, plumbing, stud framing, bricks, stone, lawn care at the end. But every time, there is always this pile of bricks and stone that doesn't get used. I wonder if you could imagine being that stone for a second. The house is completely built, and you're looking at it. All of your friends, all the other rocks were used to put up on the front, and you're left looking around, and there's grass and bugs around you, and you think, I'm not going to be a part of this house, am I? That's what happens to you, Christian. When you come to the last day and you realize you did not build your life into God's church, and I'm not talking merely attendance, I'm talking you offer spiritual sacrifices, you are a living stone laid upon Christ. Don't let that happen to you. Build upon Christ. I like how one commentator put it. He said that Christ is laid across the path of humanity on its course into the future, and one cannot simply step over Jesus to go on about the daily routine and pass him by to build on some other structure. It won't last. Either one sees him and becomes a living stone or one stays blind and stumbles over him, coming to ruin. That's the very indictment that Peter gave to the leaders, the builders, in Acts 4. Acts chapter 4, he said, you all rejected the cornerstone. There's salvation in no one else other than Christ. So hear me loud and clear this morning being a church member does not mean you're saved. Attending a church does not mean you're saved. Resting on the cornerstone means that you're saved. But an implication of resting on the cornerstone is that you're built up with other stones. So don't twist it. The gospel is that we've all tried to build our own way. And God judges us for it. Remember the Tower of Babel in Genesis? The first monumental building project where God is left out of the picture, and God puts an end to that work. God will put an end to your life if you're not building upon Christ. You've been created to be a living stone, and if you find yourself a dead stone this morning, cry out to the living stone. Ask him to make you alive. Ask him to take you out of your darkness into his light. This is why Jesus came. He was laid as a foundational stone. All the prophets in the Old Testament were looking forward and leaning forward, and that foundational stone was laid, and now everything's complete. It has, it has its fulfillment. The New Testament, we lean back on what Christ has done as the cornerstone, and these walls of the Old Covenant and the New are all resting upon Christ. The newness that we see in the New Covenant is that Christ rose from the grave, He did not stay dead, He is a living stone. So that sacrifice that he gave means that he's not a cornerstone that's just polished up, has no nicks and scars and bruises. He's a cornerstone that has been whipped and beaten and flogged, nails driven through him. He is a bloody cornerstone. But none of his bones were broken. He absorbed all of God's wrath. And just like when I drive home and I see these building projects in my neighborhood, the builders don't care if it rains on the foundation once it's been poured and it's settled and it's hard. They don't worry about that. Christ has absorbed all the wrath of God. It's all been exhausted upon Him. And when the storm of God's wrath was over, that foundation three days later was shown to have held. All that we are rests upon all that He is. All of God's wrath rested upon Him. So take all of your hopes, all of your fears, all of your insecurities all of your longings, and rest it upon Christ. He can handle the weight of it. The beautiful thing about having a great foundation is it determines the walls and the floor plan. It determines the functionality of the house. So let's close our time this morning looking at the last few verses, verses 9 and 10, the functionality of this house, the purpose of it. The language of Hosea is used at the end of verse 10. Let's read this. Verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So there's all these contrasts at the end, right? Light and darkness, not a people, but now you are a people. No mercy, but now you have shown mercy. This is what the prophecy in Hosea talked about, that God's people would be gathered together again. Did you notice that we are a people unified in blood? It says the word race there in verse 9, a chosen race. We are a family by Christ's blood. We have the same bloodlines. If you know Christ, consider the implications of that. Consider that for who we reach out to in evangelism, for who we choose to talk to and disciple in our midst, do we look at the other living stones in our midst as precious blood-like family? Because they are. Christians are blood relatives joined by the blood of Christ our spiritual ethnicity. Peter declares who we are and what we do here. This is the functionality of the house, what we do. He uses symmetry language there, royal priesthood, priesthood of the king, holy nation, symmetry with verse 5, 4 and 5. But what what is it that we do? What's this house for? It says it right there in the middle of verse 9 that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light this is what the church does we proclaim we declare truth any church that thinks you know what our mission is no longer to proclaim and guard the gospel to be a pillar and buttress of the truth we're just going to go do social justice while that is good and right if that replaces the declarative mission of the church pretty soon you're going to lose the church you feed somebody or clothe the homeless, what's going to happen if that's the only thing you begin to do? Well, a company like Amazon or Apple, any big company, H-E-B, Whole Foods, they might be better at distributing food to those in need than we would, right? At a certain point, we have to think what makes us unique as a church, as God's house? What is our function that no one else has in society? It's to declare the praises of God, to proclaim his excellencies. So when we do give to the poor, we do it with an added dose of, I'm going to hand you this, and I'm going to declare with this. This is the way to be saved. This will not save you. You don't live by bread alone. It's clear, isn't it? The purpose of God's church is to proclaim the excellencies of of him who called you out of darkness we proclaim how gracious god is we proclaim how merciful he is we proclaim how slow to anger he is we proclaim how forgiving he is we proclaim how good and true he is we proclaim his gospel we proclaim his omnipotence how powerful he is we proclaim his presence is everywhere he's an omnipotent god We proclaim all the glories of his character. That's why you come back to gather every week. We can't proclaim everything about God in one service. But it's not merely a job for a preacher. This is a task for all the living stones. So, brother or sister, how are you doing proclaiming the excellencies of God to others? Those outside of our gathering and even those inside. You don't have to be ashamed to proclaim excellencies about God inside, do you? Because as verse 10 says, we're people who are people of God. We know his mercy. But yes, there is that shame and that that immediate fear that you may feel to proclaim God's glory outside this gathering. That's exactly what Peter's listeners were facing. Shame and rejection and trials. And Peter is saying, If you're rejected out there for proclaiming these excellencies, that's evidence that you're built upon a rejected cornerstone. So goes the stone, so goes the living stones. If he's rejected, you will be rejected if you're built in alignment with him. So don't be afraid to proclaim who he is. That's the very mission of you being built up together. There's so many warnings, encouragements, So many things in this passage. I want to end this morning on a a beautiful uh, quote from Charles Spurgeon. If there's any man who who knew about laying up a bunch of stones, this guy had thousands of members at his church, but it wasn't an entertainment-driven church. It wasn't a seeker-sensitive, friendly church. It was a gospel-driven church. Here's what he said about living stones as you and I who have been long brought into the church think of how we became built upon the foundation. Let us praise the hand which laid us in our place and as we cling closer and closer to the great cornerstone to whom we are always coming let us bless him that the same love which in the beginning cemented us to the cornerstone still holds us in place so firmly today that none shall separate us. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that we would marvel and be in awe at this building project that you are doing, your church. Help us, Father, to be living stones that are rightly ordered on the cornerstone. Help us to offer spiritual sacrifices, to proclaim your goodness. Help us to not be Consumers help us to never be deceived and think that we know you and yet we are are not intimately connected and a part of a local church we praise you for your masterful architectural work we can't wait to dwell in your house forever Lord haste that day on Christ the cornerstone we ask all of these